So we're talking about the hard parts of life in this sermon series, Breaking the Silence. We're talking about those winter seasons in our faith journey where it is just downright difficult. And it looks like winter seasons, although they'll surely come to all of us at some point. Um, and actually, I was listening to Seasons by Hillsong Worship, and we have the lyrics on the information table. But it's the first line, like the frost on a rose, winter comes for us all. It's going to come. And it'll come to you, and... Although we'll all experience it, there's no two winter seasons alike. For one person, it could be a spiritual dryness where God seems distant or silent, and they feel like their prayers are bouncing off the walls. For other people, it can be, uh, their winter season can be marked by a very difficult experience, a job loss, uh, some sort of conflict in one of your relationships. Maybe it's a marital issue. Maybe it's, it's a struggle with one of your children. Um, it could be with a coworker, you know, at work, it, 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 a difficult circumstance. There's just a ton of di- difficult circumstances, right? We can all think of those that we sometimes experience. Also, usually why winter seasons are so difficult is not only do they include some form of suffering, but often they include waiting, waiting. Waiting, waiting, and more waiting, don't they? Waiting for spring to come. Waiting for breakthrough to come. And that is hard. It's hard to wait in the dead of winter. It's hard to wait in the dead of winter. Waiting is hard. It's hard to be patient. It's hard to keep on keeping on when the sun hasn't shined for months and months, and all you see are concrete skies. It's hard. It's hard to keep a positive attitude when your circumstances don't appear to be leading to a breakthrough, but they appear to be breaking you. It's hard to have that positive attitude that things can actually change Especially when the winter season doesn't make sense and it's left you confused. You can't help but cry with the psalmist in Psalm 13, 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? Perhaps this describes you. Perhaps right now this is exactly where you're at. You're smack dab in the middle of a winter storm, and you're wondering, God, where are you? There seems to be absolutely no progress in the right direction. Just when you think you're about to turn a corner, there's another setback. Doors don't seem to be opening. They seem to be closing. You've been waiting, and you've been waiting, and you've been waiting, and you don't know how much more you can take. It's where you're at. You're struggling. You don't even, you don't even know if your faith right now is the size of a mustard seed. You're longing for spring. If this describes you, I believe that the Christmas story has something to tell you this morning. 
And so we're going to turn our attention once again uh, to that first Christmas. And I think you're going to find embedded within it uh, encouragement and hope for you if you're in a winter season. So pray with me, and then we're going to check it out. Lord Jesus, what a king you are. You are the prince of peace, and you have come to give us peace. Lord, we pray that as we consider that first Christmas story in your incarnation, that you would use this story to teach us some very important things that can help us not just survive winter, but thrive in it. God, we are thankful that we are never alone, that you're with us through the ups and downs, that we have your promise that you will not leave nor forsake us. For those who are hurting this morning and are feeling crushed under the weight of their burden, we pray that your spirit would minister. Amen. Oh, goodness. All right, here we go. So, if you're feeling abandoned, if you're wondering, because here, here's what happens. This is what the enemy does in winter season. This, this is the lie that Satan wants to whisper to your ear. He wants you to believe God has abandoned you in the winter. That's, that's what he, he wants you to doubt the goodness of God. He wants you to believe that God is doing nothing to help you. That he's sitting back, relaxing, and enjoying watching you struggle. He's not good, and therefore he can't be trusted. And if you're in this spot, and the enemy is whispering this lie to you, you need to hear this truth that the Christmas story just screams. In your waiting, God is working. In your waiting, God is working. If God is silent, he is not still. If God is silent, he is not still. This truth is glaringly clear in the Christmas story. It's glaringly clear. It's just oozing with these two wonderful truths. And you know what? We find it in a very unlikely place in the Christmas story. We find these truths all over and within Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And I just want to point this out to you because, you know, the genealogies, typically we skip them, right? They have a whole bunch of names that we can't pronounce, and who likes feeling like they can't read, right? And so we just kind of look at them like that, and we go, to, we go on. But there's a reason that Matthew started his gospel with this genealogy and you need to see this because it provides you the hope that's going to help you cope. Let's just look at the verse 1 here of, of Matthew 1. This is, this is how uh, Matthew starts his gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. Just this one verse is so packed full of God's faithfulness, his sovereignty, and evidence that in your waiting, he's working. Let me explain. Matthew mentions Abraham. Why does he mention Abraham? Because thousands of years earlier, God made a promise to Abraham. Do you know what that promise is? Let me, let me explain it to you. God promised Abraham that he would make his family great. Great. He promised them numerous descendants. And he promised that through his family that he would make into this great nation, he would bless Abraham's family so that through Abraham's family he could bless the rest of the world. That is the promise God made to Abraham. I am going to use your family, Abraham, to rescue the world from sin and death. God was faithful to keep the promise of making Abraham's family great. They became numerous, and they eventually became, and, and if you just look at the, God's faithfulness to Abraham individually, and then you look at uh, God's faithfulness to Abraham's family, I mean, you know, slavery in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, he preserved them through famine and drought, he sustained them through wandering in the wilderness, he sustained them and provided for them so that they were able to conquer the promised land. His faithfulness and his sovereignty is just all over it. And then Matthew in the genealogy, the first verse, he mentions David. Why does Matthew mention David? Because God promised David something. He made another promise. David, a descendant of Abraham, God promised to David, hey, you're, you're going to have an heir that will sit on your throne forever and whose kingdom will never end. Not, not too bad for, for a promise, right? And so we have God promising this to, to David, and sure enough, God makes this promise. David has a son, King Solomon. As God was making this promise to David, he was allowing the nation of Israel, Abraham's family, to continue to increase in strength and power and influence. And then King David, he has a son named King Solomon. And under King Solomon, the nation of Israel becomes one of the world's superpowers, and, and it gets to its height of power and influence in the world. And it looks like the nation of Israel is finally poised and ready to be God's chosen vehicle to extend blessing to the rest of the nations. Unfortunately, Israel became corrupt too. Instead of influencing the nations towards God, they became influenced by the nations and started to walk away from God. And as a result, the nation of Israel became divided, and then it was conquered by one foreign regime after another, after another. And God's people, of course, the faithful remnant of God's people, they were devastated. And as they suffered under one oppressive regime after another, God started speaking through his prophets. And guess what his prophets were saying to God's people? He's still going to keep his promise to Abraham and David. He's still going to keep his promise. Because they had to be wondering, had God, has God forgotten us? 
Has he forgotten about his promise? Is he going to break his promise? He said that he was going to bless the nations through Abraham's family. He said that he was going to, there was going to be an heir of David that would sit on his throne forever, and his kingdom would be eternal. We're not seeing it. Our present circumstances don't seem to, to say that this is really still in play. And so, as the Old Testament closes, you have God's people just longing for this promise to Abraham and David to be fulfilled. They're longing for God's special king to come and to rescue them from this foreign oppression that they're experiencing. They're longing for every right to be, or every wrong to be made right. They're longing for God to once and for all destroy evil. And then guess what? 400 years of waiting. 400 years of waiting. Century after century goes by, still no new king, no new kingdom, and no redemption. And if there wasn't, if there wasn't ever a time to wonder, what on earth is God doing? This was the time. And you know what made it even just utterly confusing? God was silent. Silence. There was no new prophecy, no new visions. Surely, people had to start wondering, where is God? What about all this talk about the Messiah and redemption? And does God even hear us? Does he hear our cries? Is he really good? Can he be trusted? And then, all right, so now, if you were to open up your New Testament, um, you now can understand the weight of Matthew's words in chapter 1. Verse 1, because it's in to this historical context that these words are spoken. And actually, things in that 400 years had gone from bad to worse. Because as we open the pages of the New Testament, what do we find? We find God's people under the most oppressive regime of them all, Rome. Rome, Rome, Rome was brutal. You don't mess with Rome. And that's where they were, waiting waiting. I'm sure they were trying to reconcile God's goodness with their present circumstances. Now, look at this verse. Now that you know the historical context, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus, do you know what it means? God saves. That's what it means. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's a title. It means anointed one. Why does Matthew mention David and Abraham? Why does he mention these two guys? Are you putting the puzzle pieces together? This is God's anointed king that he will use to establish his kingdom, and he will use that king in his kingdom to provide salvation to the nations. This is what Matthew is declaring in this first verse. Matthew's saying is that, this is what he's saying, God has broken the silence. He has really heard the cries of his people. While his people were waiting, God was working. When God was silent, he was not still. 
God's specially chosen anointed king and his new kingdom are about to arrive and bring salvation to the world. The redemption of the world and the defeat of evil is on its way. God has kept his promise. Salvation has a name, and its name is Jesus. But there's even more evidence in this genealogy that I think should encourage us to know that while we wait, God works. Let me draw your attention to five women in this genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. You need to know that back in Jesus' day, it was extremely unusual for anybody to mention women in a genealogy. They always would mention the guys because the guys were considered the head of the households. And so that when they did a genealogy, they didn't mention women. And so when an author did include women in a genealogy, he did it for a very important reason. Now, I don't know why, I don't know all the reasons behind the way, uh, you know, what God was doing and having Matthew write the genealogy this way. But I think one thing that becomes very glaringly clear in him mentioning these five women, because he could have mentioned, why didn't he mention the matriarchs of Israel, right? Like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, let me, let me tell you about these five women, and I'll tell you what I think one of the things that God was doing. So Tamar, her story was she pretended to be a cult prostitute in order to have sex with her father-in-law. That's her story. She was also most likely a Canaanite. Uh, the, the Canaanites, they were, they were wicked people. Um, they were people that worshiped false gods, and they negatively impacted God's people throughout the Old Testament. So that's Tamar. Matthew also mentions Rahab. She was actually a prostitute. But, it, it, but she, she was um, a Gentile to boot, right? A Gentile is, is, is a non-Jewish person. And she was but yet a member of God's chosen people. Isn't that interesting? She was not, but she became one. And then there's Ruth. Ruth, um, she was a Moabite. And Moabites, they were wicked people as well. And they were people that negatively influenced God's people through the Old Testament. And then there's Bathsheba. She had an affair with King David. So she's on the list. And then there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was involved in this scandal where she was pregnant, but she was not married, and surely the townspeople just had all sorts of thoughts about Mary. But there's more in this genealogy. This genealogy mentions a whole slew of evil kings. Jaram was evil. Jeconiah was evil. If you were going to write a genealogy about the Savior of the world, God's special anointed king, why on earth would you include these folks? Why? I mean, when you, we thought our family was messed up. Jesus's family was messed up. Here is why I think God included these. It's because God wants to show 
as his people wait for him and as his people go along, he is working and he is even working through the most difficult, confusing circumstances to produce what he loves. Joni Erickson Todd, I read these words this past week, and I, they just hit me, and they resonated with me. She writes this, and she's a quadriplegic. Um, at 17, through a diving accident, became one. She writes this, God was using what he hates to produce that which he loves. Or to take some words from jo- Joseph in Genesis, God took what the enemy meant for evil, and he used it for good. What is the good that God is always doing in our winter seasons? I'm going to tell you, and it's, it's what Joseph said in Genesis. He is saving many lives. That's what he, that's, I mean, he's probably doing a thousand different things, but one of the things he's always doing in winter season is he's using the winter to save many lives. Jesus' genealogy is full of uh, the enemy's destructive work. And yet God used it all to create the right circumstances for the arrival of Jesus, the Savior of the world. Remarkable. Isn't this the ultimate defeat of evil? Evil does its best to produce this destruction, throws its best punches, and only finds that actually what ends up happening is there's so much tremendous beauty out of the ashes that he tries to create. You would think he would get to the point where he would stop throwing punches because God just continues to create beauty out of ashes. And you know what? God's power to allow what he hates to produce that which he loves didn't stop with bringing Jesus into the world. It continued on through his life and ultimately in his death and resurrection, didn't it? Where you have Jesus experiencing the most horrific thing a person can experience. Think about how he was rejected by his, uh, the people he, he loved He was betrayed by one of his closest friends, abandoned by the rest of his closest friends. Unfairly, he was tried and condemned, even though he had never done or committed one crime, not even a single sin. And then he experienced the horrors of the flogging and the beating and the crucifixion. It was so extremely evil through and through. And God was using it all. To create that which he loves. What? The salvation of many souls. God was smack dab in the middle of that destruction, chaos, and he was leveraging it for his good so that a way could be made for sinful people like you and me to come to Christ so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to God and experience the abundant life now and forever, only, only the, the abundant life only God can provide. I don't know what all is happening in your winter experience this morning. What I do know is in your experience, your winter experience, he is saving your life through it 
And he wants to use your winter experience to save the lives of other people. Remember the individualized discipleship plan that we created? Two things we talked about in that plan. The first is God wants us to grow in our knowledge and experience of him as our extravagantly loving father, creator, and savior. He's using your winner to do that. No doubt about it in my mind. Remember the second part of that plan is to remove the old sinful habits of thinking and behaving that we that are left over from our old life. God is also using your winter experience to do that. Um, the reason we have the seeds on the stage is because, and I was reading this about a seed, there are many seeds that unless they go into the ground and experience, well, all seeds, right? But there's, there are particular seeds that they have to go through the cold of winter in order to break their outer, outer shell. And if they don't go through the cold of winter, that dross, so to speak, will not be removed so that then they can grow. And that's why I love this song, Seasons by Hillsong. Like the frost on a rose, winter comes for us all. Oh, how nature acquaints us with the nature of patience. Like a seed in the snow, I've been buried to grow. If, you've been, if you feel like you're buried this morning, you have been buried to grow. For your promise is loyal from seed to sequoia. I know, though, the winter is long. I love this. Even richer, the harvest it brings. Though my waiting prolongs, even greater, your promise for me, like a seed, I believe that my season will come. Lord, I think of your love like the low winter sun. As I gaze, I am blinded in the light of your brightness. And like a fire to the snow, I'm renewed in your warmth. Melt the ice of this wild soul till the barren is beautiful. And I know, though the winter is long, even richer the harvest it brings. Though my waiting prolongs, even greater your promise for me. Like a seed, I believe that my season will come. I can see the promise. I can see the future. You're the God of seasons, and I'm just in the winter. If all I know of harvest is that it's worth my patience, then if you're not done working, God, I'm not done waiting. You can see my promise even in the winter, because you're the God of greatness, even in a manger. For I know of, for all I know of seasons is that you take your time. You could have saved us in a second. Instead, you sent a child. And when I finally see my tree, still I believe there's a season to come, like a seed you were sown for the sake of us all. From Bethlehem's soil grew Calvary's sequoia. Oh, my goodness. Hey. One of the things that we are doing right now in this series is we're giving you evidence today that this stuff is true. Because it's real easy to come here and listen to me talk about things that happened 2,000 years ago. And it's, it, it can be easy to think, well, does it really still work today? We have a very special guest from Rahab. I am so thrilled to have her be here this morning 
uh, just, just a tremendous lady. Uh, her name is Angel. She's going to tell you a bit of her story, and you're going to see God's handiwork all over it. You're going to see God taking ashes and creating immense beauty. Angel, let's give her a warm abundant life welcome. I'm already about to cry. <laughs> You're on. Woo, man, that message just wanted to make me do a backflip, and then I remember I can't backflip. <laughs> right? I got to stay seated. If I try to do something, I might hurt you or me. So, yes, my name is Angel. When I was born on Valentine's Day in 1971, never believed that in a million years that I was going to live this long, um, not the life that I had chose for myself. Um, but when I was born, my, the whole time my dad, my mom was pregnant, my dad said, that's my angel, that's my little angel. So when I was born, he's like, I'm going to name her Angel and call her Angel. And my mom's like, why, right? So they put Angel Marie on my birth certificate. Uh, today I know why. Today I know why. Um, I followed Satan a long time, living a life for my flesh. Um, and this is how it started. So um, I was born, and, and I was trouble um, pretty much from kindergarten and first grade. And I think I sailed through second, third, fourth, and that uh, pretty well, doing what I was asked to do. Um, never really felt different. We moved over to Hartville, and I started going to Lake. Um, I grew up with those kids, and I never felt opposite. I felt like I fit in, like I was a family. Um, now, my dad was raised in a very verbally abusive family. Uh, it wasn't until I got older and started uh, really putting the truth in me that I realized that people can't give what they don't have. He could only give what he was filled with, right? And um, he has become a different man. Um, it's been some work. Like, you have to take a hammer to my dad, right? Um, but that's what God does. He chisels away the ugly that doesn't belong so that we can rise up in his truth. Um, so anyway, I was um, going to school. We had all kind of birthday parties, swimming pool parties, all that kind of stuff at my house. Everybody loved to be over. It was a big neighborhood family. And then at 13, I find out I'm moving to Arizona. And that's when I um, began to speak death all over my life. Little did I know at the time that the power holds, uh, the power of the tongue holds life and death, Right. And so all the way out there, I thought, what are these kids going to say? They're going to think I'm ugly. They're going to want to hang out with me. What's going to happen? And I got out there to Arizona. My mom finally put me in school after a week. Um, and all that stuff I spoke over myself happened. Them kids started to bully me. They started calling me names. They talked about the freckles on my arms. And I used to wear long sleeve shirts in 80-degree weather. I used to wear my hair in front of my face because I thought, who should ever have to look at somebody as ugly as me? And I took all their lies and I shoved them deep inside me and I made it my truth. And then I didn't even know it was a lie anymore. And by the age of 14, um, I got involved with a guy and uh, I was looking for love. And I was looking for it in the world and it made a very dark spot inside of me. And one night, staying at their house because we were transitioning into a new house and we were waiting for the paperwork to get finished. So we went to stay with people that had also transferred out from Ohio and their son, who I was dating and had no idea what that even meant, um, crawled into the room and uh, he, wanted, uh, he wanted me. And I told him, no way. And then he said, well, then I'm going to find somebody that loves me. And that fear got greater than giving myself away. So I gave myself away. And from the very time of that, I learned to disconnect myself. Um, I've been trapped in sexual abuse and sin for many, many years. And God finally broke it off. Two and a half years ago when I was finally ready. There's my glamour shot. 
I used to think, man, why didn't somebody tell me I looked like that? When I first seen that picture, I didn't even know it was me. Um, but anyway, so here I am out there, and, and he throws me away after that, and then I start trying to find my identity in men. And I go through all of them, everyone that ever paid attention to me. On the inside, I'm all messed up and dark. And on the outside, I'm trying to make look like everything's okay. I didn't want anybody to know I was weak because if they knew that, then they could get over me. And then when later I read in the Bible that in my weakness, God would build my biggest strength, I started inviting weakness in. I'm, I am weak because through this storm on the other side, I will be strong because that's God's promise. I went through a life of rape, beatings. Um, the very first scripture I ever put in my heart was John 10, 10. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I had to know that when them things came at me, that it wasn't God because he was good because it says Jesus came so that we may have life of abundance. And I held on to that scripture. I hold on to it today. I hang on to a lot of them because I needed to put the truth in me because Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights fought the enemy with the word of God. So what do I need to fight him with? So he said to write it on the tablet of my heart. And so I got busy. But during all my darkness, I was hopeless. I hated myself. I didn't think I was worthy. I believed in Jesus, and I knew God loved me no matter what I did, but I thought, man, he's got something better to do than me. Um, a lot of things happened out there. Uh, I remember one time I was being investigated for murder. I wasn't even sure at the time had I done it. Um, them drugs will take you to a place that's dark and to a place that your mind is totally over to the drug. That drug introduced me to a guy who beat me and put me on the streets of Akron. I'll never forget the first car I got in or the second or third or the thousandth car I got in. I'll never forget it. It's what drives me down to the hood now to the very one that had me captive to go down and tell them women they were born for way more than what the world has told them they are. Because, see, Jesus came down to the depths of them streets where I was dark and I stunk and nobody wanted anything to do with me except my mother. But even Jesus loved me more than her. And he came down from heaven to pick me up and set my feet on solid rock. So I went through a lot of turmoil, moved out here, brought all the turmoil with me because I just kept pointing my finger. It's their fault that I'm the way I am. It's their fault that I went to jail. It's their fault until somebody said, hey, angel, every time you point, threes point back at the dummy that's causing the problems. And I realized that I was the problem. And even though I realized it, I didn't want to change it because I was in a place so dark full of lies that I just didn't think I was worthy to come above them. That's where 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, and 18 came in. Rejoice, always pray continually, and be thankful in all circumstances. See, I was letting my circumstances determine which way my life was going to go, and it was always back to the drug because the drug would make me forget, but what it did was make me chase and crazy and sell myself, my soul, to men, whoever was trying to buy it, so that I could stay out of my mind. And then March 31st of 2008 came. And God sent a chariot in the form of a Summit County paddy wagon. Little did I know I was being rescued at the time. 
And I remember trying to get out of it. <laughs> but God seemed fit that he was going to send me in. I've been arrested, gosh, I think I have 27 convictions. Three of them are felony. I've got trafficking of drugs and two counts of uh, possession. I used to blame one of them, like, hey, it wasn't mine. It was in his car and his stuff. But there was many times that God had let me off of many things, and this was the time that it needed to be nailed in so that I couldn't get out of trouble anymore. See, he put his hand down in love so that I could begin to see who change, who's the game changer, right? Jesus is the game changer. He's the game changer. His blood bled out on the cross to give us the shot to spend eternity for him, with him. So April Fool's Day of 2008, that's my sobriety date. God knows a fool when he sees a fool, right? I rose up on that mat that's about this skinny that sits on cement. You get to do everything in front of other people. Like you wake up to their breath and you got to use a toilet with them right there with you. And it's a hot mess. And then you got to eat stuff that doesn't look like, it looked like they just chipped it off the side of the road and set it on your plate. But when I woke up that morning, something inside of me said, I got to be worth more than what I've been doing. So I start watching this girl and I'm like, man, this girl's on happy pills. There's nobody this happy in the Summit County Jail. I'm going to find out what it is so I can get her happy pill. But everywhere she went, she had the basic instructions before leaving earth in her, in her arms. She was in the Bible. She had a shine and a talk that was different from the rest of us, and I was drawn to it. And then about a week in, they say my name over the intercom and said I had a clergy visit, and I looked next to the lady next to me, and I said, what is that? And she's like, oh, some lady wants to talk to you about Jesus. And I flew up the stairs. And on the other side of the glass was this little tiny piece of big dynamite <laughs> with red hair and this big old smile. And we conversated. And the only thing I remember to this day was she said, Jesus loves you. And boy, I took a hold of that. And I still hold on to it today because life is rough. But you got to stand on the truth, not on the emotion. 11 months later, it took me to find this lady. I went through a lot of programs. I got successfully kicked out. How does that work other than God, right? I, uh, 11 months later, found out who the woman was. I thought about her every day. She was deep down in my heart. I knew I had to meet her. And 11 months later, somebody told me she keeps showing up this house on Matthew Street. And that next Friday at 3 o'clock, I kicked open the door. Do you remember who I am? Probably scared the mess out of her. I was like, I'm going to stalk you here on earth all the way to heaven. Her name's Becky Moreland. She's the founder of Rahab Ministry. She was the one that Jesus came to and she said yes. And because of that, it's helping thousands of children and women every day to become from the broken mess that they have teamed up with with Satan on the ground, thinking they're not worthy, rising up in the truth. Because Rahab's given the truth that changes the game. And so she says, I stalked her for six years, and she finally gave me a job. So that's how you get work at Rahab, right? And I still stalk her today. She retired a couple years ago, but she didn't retire from me. So Rahab Ministries is the heartbeat of Jesus for me. 
It's where I went after being with thousands of men, being judged and told I'd never make it into a house that said, no, we don't care what you've done. They loved me right where I was. And every time I came to Becky saying, I'm doing this, this, and this wrong, she would say, but you're doing this, this, and this right. She kept me focused on what was good in me by always pointing me to the Father, which I built a relationship through Christ to God. See, I read scriptures that, that like Jeremiah 1.5, I knew you before I ever wove you together. He knew everything about me and still gave me breath to come here to do his, his job, his will. Took me a long time to get here, and I'm not perfect at it. But I'll tell you, I'm going to close with this. We have, from the ground level, uh, street ministry, strip club ministry, jail ministry, drop-in house in the hood, right, in the dark, in the broken, in the crazy, in the war, where the enemy is trying to take out and kill lives. He has set a house in that neighborhood that is light. This is a dark world, and it hurts. But when I'm caught up on the evil, then I forget to be the light of Christ that I am. Jesus says, be the light. And so that's what I'm doing. So I'm not really going to work. See, I'm built for this. This is the purpose that he wove together in my heart. Women that are trapped where I used to be. Then from there, we have an adult safe house. It sits on 33 acres. I remember one time I was taking a girl there and she goes, oh my gosh, it's a doctor's house. <laughs> because Becky said her vision from God was that these women deserved the top best. You don't know how many stories we hear of grown women coming in that talk about their families who sold them as children, raped them as children, molested them, the neighbor, the brother, the uncle, the stranger. Then we have a children's Minor safe house. How sad that we need that. But how amazing that God put it on the heart of a woman that would say yes. Becky didn't let the fear stop her. She did it afraid if that's what she had to do. Minor safe house, 20 acres, built from the ground up. I know it's God. I've seen him move where you didn't think anything was going to change, and then he just birthed this seed into a big old place for a people that were children that were 11. They're 11 to 17 at this house. Everything we do at Rahab, this is my favorite part of Rahab. You ready for this? Other than the word of God, that's my favorite ever in life. But my favorite thing at Rahab is there is never anyone charged to get clothes, to get personals, to stay. You can stay up to two years. And if you're doing good at two years, you can stay beyond that. And we never ask for a dollar. See, we want you to be able to come in and go to the trauma counseling that we have hooked up with Emerge. They are master's degree in trauma counseling Christians. Telling the truth, right? Breaking the darkness. People run donate all them things to fill up them pots so that them people never have to pay to go to counseling, to go to 
uh, equine therapy, to go to yoga, and all the things that we do to help them heal from the inside out by giving them the truth and then everything they need around to begin to heal. So I am just honored any time that I can come out and tell anybody how God's changed me and how he continues to change me today. I don't know what God puts on anybody's heart, but what I know is we all have a purpose and we are the body of Christ and we are called. We are called. The church is called. It's called to help other people. So if that today is Rahab Ministries, let that be what you do for God. God bless. Angel, stay up here. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, I want to pray. Why don't you guys stand with me? Let's pray. I'm so grateful uh, that she would be willing to give of her time to come here and talk to us. You've been working for Rahab for 11 years? Five years, five and years? I'll be with the ministry in March for 11 years. They're not getting rid of me. I'm staying there until I'm in heaven. <laughs> so we are, we are grateful for that. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for Angel. Lord, we are so grateful for her story. It's really your story. Yes, Jesus. It's a story of how you have taken a seed. And you have made her more fully into your image to be a sequoia of strength. Uh, for those who are still lost in the darkness and they need help, they need, they need rescue. Yes. Lord, thank you that we are your wounded healers. Thank you that you save us to serve, that you bless us so that we can be a blessing to others and join you and partner you, partner with you in, in your rescue of people that are still in the grip of the enemy. Lord, we thank you for Rahab. We thank you for the ministry. We pray that this year, up and coming, will be the best year of the ministry yet, that there would be more people rescued out of human trafficking than ever, and that those people would be healed in you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would uh, move upon our people to, to give sacrificially to this ministry. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.